Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. My name is Jens Nelson and with me today is Lucas Stock. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. We thank you for joining us as we explore, discuss, and grow together as followers of Christ. So, Lucas, you've been using that Lagos Bible software at all lately, or uh, I don't really know. Um, I have. I have. As a matter of fact, I yesterday, in preparation for starting my MDiv this fall and starting oh, man. with uh, Intro to Greek this fall, me and um, one of my dear friends from Moody that you know, Connor Ham, we are going to work our way through a Greek grammar this summer. He's going to kind of like do some review. And for me, it's new. Um, and so I started learning the alphabet yesterday on Lagos because there's a, a nifty little uh, like alphabet flashcard set that goes through Dang. the alphabet just and so i used that Soon yesterday be fluent in, in all the biblical languages exactly i will be the premier scholar on anything in any language ever i'm sure we'll have some at somewhere somewhere down the line on this podcast there's going to be an episode where we talk a lot about something in greek i just have a feeling <laughs> oh boy it'll be you know do loss or something and what that actually means or i don't know we'll see we'll see but but yeah also i've yeah, been i haven't i feel like you i was gonna say I, I just i feel like you especially have like a great need for lagos like i like it for mm-hmm. you know some of the prep that we do or you know just when i have curiosity but like especially as you're about to go into your master's program i can imagine you're like pretty amped i am really stoked that lagos generously sponsored us and i got i'm getting <laughs> used to to you know i i would have ended up getting some kind of Bible software eventually. So I'm super grateful that I get to have such a cool relationship with it and also, mm. you know, get to get used to using the tools ahead of time. You know, I've been been diving into some of the resources, you know, for this episode especially. I wanted to look into some of those more, you know, classic, well-regarded, systematic texts and stuff. So I, you know, I took a look at, you know, a little bit of... Do we have Burkhoff? We have, Is that... we have Burkhoff and Hodge. That's where I... I access both of them. Um, as far I as I know, know that. as far as I know, it's it's their whole respective systematics as well. Um, Dang, I think cool. at least at least. See, I, I learn new things about it every day. There's just so much. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, we've talked about it before. We won't necessarily beat a dead horse, but Logos is amazing. There's so much there in terms of functionality as well as just in terms of resources. Um, like I was scrolling through the store the other day as well, looking at a bunch of different collections of of church fathers and and stuff like that, and um, and it really is amazing how versatile it is in terms of what it offers, and also just in terms of the user. Like, yeah, you know, in a, in a, in a in a month and a half, I'll be starting my MDiv, and you, as of right now, are not in a theological master's program, but you, we both have great benefits that Lagos offers us, even though we're in different, you know, contexts where we're using it. Like maybe you're not going to be writing a paper for a grade, but you're still going to be studying the Bible. You're still going to be reflecting on the Trinity, you know, like whatever it might be. um, It, it really, it's not a tool only for a certain class of people. You know, it, it, Mm. it really is a tool for anybody who wants to dive, dive into um, the history the the language the theology 
of scripture and and studying scripture you know sweet well said well i think we'll just jump right into our our topic today and as you've already guessed we're going to be talking about the trinity and uh, this is a, a topic that we ought to approach with um you know great wonder uh with with awe with reverence with um <laughs> you know worship in mind because this is a mystery and as as my boy john calvin said it is a mystery that is to be more adored than investigated hmm. um it's uh the doctrine of the trinity uh, as he also said is the heart and the core of our confession it's the heart and core of our faith um it is the praise and the comfort of all true believers in christ um so do you want to sort of give us uh, some some overview an introduction to what we're going to be talking about what you know why is the trinity important um you know, the word Trinity isn't even found in the Bible. So why would we use language like that? Mm. Or um, just we'll, we'll sort of dive right in. Yeah, I think that I'm really glad that you started off with that Calvin quote. I think that that sentence, the doctrine of the Trinity is the heart and core of our confession. That is what I want to sort of accomplish. You know, I use that term loosely, but what I think we want to accomplish with, with an episode like this Um because I think oftentimes it's not the heart and core of our confession. I'm not saying that people go around denying the Trinity. At the same time, it's one thing to confess the Trinity, to say that you believe in the Trinity, to say that, yes, God is three in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, but have it sort of detached from the rest of your theology or have it as sort of a you know an appendix to your main, you know, theological hobby horses, whether that's, you know, a theology of gender tulip. or a the- or tulip or, um, you know, a theology of, of the sacraments or, you know, you could fill in your blank. Think of any sort of, you know, tr- tradi- you know, different tradition of, of Christianity, different theological camp and what sort of the main things are. If those main things aren't the Trinity, it's, you know, that's a problem. It's a different problem than straight up denying the Trinity, but it's also a problem to, to not have it as that heart and core of our confession. Um, and I think that it's important to remember how important the Trinity is um, because without the Trinity, you don't have Christianity. With, mm. without, without Trinity, God isn't the God of the Bible anymore. If you don't, have a triune God, you cannot worship the Christian God. Um, Which is exactly why that what Calvin is saying there is so important and so true and so solid is because he's putting at the forefront, you know, the, the deepest, most beautiful, most mysterious, most amazing truth that we have about God, which is the fact that he is Trinity. The fact that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are united as three in one, one in three, and that forms the basis of all that we know about God and all that we know about the universe and ourselves, as well as the way that we relate to God. The Son is incarnated to do the will of the Father, sends the Spirit to unite all believers to him which we have access to the father and you can kind of see this this trinitarian nature of our salvation um 
So I think I would I would say you know at least to start, and really this this episode is going to be a start. Um, not not saying we're doing a series, maybe someday, but just this conversation isn't going to exhaust the Trinity, obviously. Um, as if we could do that. As if anyone could. <laughs> it certainly wouldn't be done in this context. No. Um, but it, at least to start, I think that is kind of what I would want to focus on and highlight for why is the Trinity so important. So I don't know if, if there's anything in, in there that you wanted to sort of, you know, focus on or yeah, respond to. I'll note the fact you sort of alluded to it, but it, there are... You know, in systematic theology and maybe biblical theology, but in in at least in academic circles, at least um, when you check out a systematic theology like like Wayne Crudum or um, is it Charles Hodge? Is that his first name? Mm-hmm. Um, or you know, some of these some of these really popular systematic theologies, which is taking doctrine, it's taking biblical teaching and sort of condensing it systematically into a coherent you know format. You know, maybe starting with um, you know, God's revelation and then going through creation or whatever, like everybody sort of, you know, organizes their systematic theologies differently. Um, but one of the problems that we've had for the last couple of centuries, at least is, you know, you, you mentioned one, I don't remember which one you mentioned before we started recording that it started like there was not a, a, a chapter or a section on the Trinity until like 400 pages in. And so if we're, if we're talking about the Trinity being like the core, the heart of our confession, then why does it come 400 pages into our 800 page book or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, I think, you know, I have some, I have some thoughts and opinions on why that might be, um, you know, I it, context of when they were written context of what was important theologically at the time. But I also sort of wonder if maybe some of the, um, you know, lack of time spent on discussing it is just because it's a mystery because it's something that's so deep and profound that um, perhaps the systematic theologian thought it took time to contemplate other things before moving on to such weighty matters. I, it's, it's hard to say at this point. It would just be conjecture, especially for those who have who have long been, um, you know, deceased. So uh, I just I kind of wanted to say that you know when we think about theology, when we think about doctrine, when we think about our faith, um, really at, at at its core like we need to be people who are trinitarian like everything that we do flows out and from that Mm. it's not like we're christians and you know i'm a baptist and i i you know i'm a a deacon in my church and then oh also i believe in the trinity Mm. however i define that um so it it really it it, like should fill um every breath that we take you know in him we move and live and have our being and that's in him it's not just in god abstractly as just the the lord or the father but we're talking about the triune god right. who exists always as trinity yep. in him a specific in a th- god. three and one right the three and one triune god we have our we live and move and have our being mm-hmm. so that i think that like more than anything mm-hmm. um which is kind of funny because mm-hmm. i think that's quoting like a pagan poet yeah <laughs> but like he uses I've like, always loved paul that. uses this pagan <laughs> poet right to say like everything that you do in him like it flows out of him yeah. and there we're by the by the end of this episode we'll sort of get into the implications of the trinity or at least some of them mm-hmm. um, but i just yeah i think on the front end it's it's helpful to sort of start there yeah definitely and and i also want to kind of you know I, I was doing some quick googling while you while you were talking because i wanted to, to confirm uh. and so like 
to, to kind of reiterate like this being sort of at the forefront um in the 39 articles of religion you know my favorite document ever <laughs> uh and the the lutheran augsburg confession both of those things the first article is about the trinity it's it's confessing hmm. faith in the trinity um if you remember back to our episode on the apostles creed um as well as we've go listen to it it's really good we've recited or read at least once um the nicene creed both of yep. those are structured trinitarianly trinitarianly i believe in god the father i believe in his son i believe in the holy spirit you know um and and fleshing out underneath those sort of if you can think of those headings fleshing out things about the work of each person within mm. the life of God, within the life of, of the believer and, and that kind of stuff. So just, just some, some real world examples of, of this. And, and I did also not to go on a rabbit trail. It does take Calvin a while to get to the Trinity. Um, I just flipped through the contents of, of, of the institutes as well. Um, but that is a different conversation because he's, I mean, I, you know, Obviously, we just listen to him. He is no slouch on the Trinity. Right. <laughs> just the way, you know, maybe you could say, oh, maybe you should have organized your institutes differently. That's a different conversation. That's not right. that's not the same thing as saying he didn't care about the Trinity. But like, you know, when we're talking about the confession, and that's the thing too, the institutes aren't a confessional document the way that like the Augsburg Confession or the Nicene Creed are. So that that's right. also something to consider. But the point being that the Trinity is super important and it belongs at the forefront because it's the foundation of our faith. Right. Um, so yeah, I think it's helpful. Um, I think I already alluded to it, but the, the so the word Trinity um, we do not find in scripture. It's not like you can turn to a page and be like, there's Trinity, unless maybe you have a study Bible and it's describing in the study notes, like something about the Trinity. But um, right. <laughs> so maybe would you, would you want to explain uh, maybe where we get this language, where we get this idea? Um, because when, when we speak of God, especially as triune, uh, language is very important. Uh, many mm. of the heresies yep. throughout church history um, have, I mean, a lot of them have just been, in regards to just subtle language differences, like one that comes to the top of my mind just real quick is um, even with Jehovah's Witnesses where they take John 1 and they say, in the beginning um, was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was a God. Mm -hmm. Not not was God, right. but they add this little <laughs> letter A and it completely changes the meaning. So language is important when we talk about the Trinity. So do you want to sort of give us an overview? Yeah, and it, it's funny that you... That you maybe you did this on purpose but it's, it's funny that you frame it about language because the way that i in my notes that i was kind of preparing this section was literally to offer definitions of some of these key words that come up in the development of you know so so the development of the doctrine of the trinity and when i say that i don't mean that at some point the church invented the trinity what i mean is the way that we speak about the trinity comes into being over the course of the church reflecting and theologizing and confronting heretics and figuring out what is the truth, what does scripture teach, and we come to a place where we have a certain vocabulary that, that develops historically uh, in the early church. And that's right. that whole process, uh, not just about the Trinity, but just in general, would probably warrant its own I mean, it, it warrants books and books and books, but at least, you know, it might be worth exploring in an episode at some point, 
uh, as well, just to sort of touch, like to explore what it, what it means for theological method and vocabulary to develop over time. But suffice it to say for here, the church has always confessed uh, belief in the God of the Bible as he is revealed in the Bible, meaning we've always confessed the Trinity. Like you said, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, and there are other words that aren't in the Bible as well that I'll throw at you in a second, um, too, that are important for discussing the Trinity. But the reason it's okay to use the word Trinity, even though it's not in the Bible, maybe that's obvious to you that it would be okay, but maybe it's not, you know, especially for um, evangelicals who are committed to the Reformation and Sola Scriptura and a very strong Bible-centric uh, hermeneutic and, and way of doing theology. Maybe it, it seems fishy. But what happened was there were various debates and questions and ultimately heretics that came up that were teaching different things than what the than what we would consider Trinitarian orthodoxy, right doctrine about the Trinity. But the thing is, everybody was using the Bible. Everybody was pointing to verses to say, oh, Jesus isn't divine. Jesus isn't God. Oh, God is only one person. There's not three persons. And everybody was using the Bible to make these claims that were contrary to what the church taught and and believed. So a new vocabulary had to be developed in order to express the truths of Scripture if that makes sense. So Trinity uh, in Latin, I, I, I think if I remember correctly, maybe not the first, but at least one of the first people to use this was a church father by the name of Tertullian. He wrote in Latin and he kind of coined the term Trinitas, um, obviously from where we get Trinity. Um, and there are some other words that come, that come into play as well with this debate. Um, one that's really important is essence. So, you know, the essence of something, what that thing is, right? When we're talking about um, the essence of God, you can think of it sort of as the, the you know, quote unquote, the, the stuff that God is. Whatever the divine nature is in itself, at its core, the, that's, the, you know, the essence of God. And in Greek, that word is the... the uh, the usia, I think is how you say it. Um, and God is not, you know, material. He's spirit, as scripture says. But but think of that as the substance, the divine nature. When we talk about, like, God's nature, we're talking about his usia, his, his essence, his substance. And then another word that's really important is the term person. Um, <laughs> here's a, a little more fun Greek one the hypostasis or hypost hypostasis i think i don't know um like i said i haven't taken greek yet but <laughs> um you'll get there the the three persons of the trinity is how we talk about father son spirit they are all distinct from one another they are three persons three hypostases but they are one god they they each are equally and fully God because they are each equally and fully participating in the divine essence, in the nature of God. There's not one nature that belongs to the Father and a different nature that belongs to the Spirit or something like that. 
but God, all three persons of the Trinity, share one essence. So three in one, you can kind of think three persons in one nature or three persons in one essence. And that language of person, of essence, of three in one, you know, you know, tr- Trinity, um, that is language that develops in the early church, particularly at the Council of Nicaea is the big one, um, in order to clarify and express the truth that we see in Scripture. So, before I move to Scripture, anything anything I left out or anything that you think is worth clarifying a little further? I, Man, I don't want to get too bogged down <laughs> in this stuff because, it, you know, we could probably spend forever just talking about usia and hypostasis right. and stuff, but I don't know how helpful that is. <laughs> I think I think I'll, I think I will add something before you get to scripture because it, it pertains to it. Um, I, I sort of have written here that that God has revealed Himself in His Word. Um, that much we've said in other podcasts. Uh, we've you know we've we've tried to make that clear that God has revealed Himself. Um, I'm trying to think of how I think I defined it as like theology is the revelation of reality, or something like that. Um, so God has revealed Himself. Um, He's revealed himself as one God. He you know, that's something that the Old Testament hammered home like over and over and over. Like, uh, you know, um, uh, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Um, there is one God. That's that's true. Yet, like you said, this God exists as three distinct persons. And so this is sort of reflective of what we talked about when we when we spoke of uh, u- unity in diversity, uh, diversity in unity. This is where that finds its root. Um, a guy named Keith uh, Matheson wrote, when the fullness of God's self-revelation in scripture is not taken into account, heresy is the result. Those who emphasize the oneness of God to the neglect of what scripture teaches regarding the deity of the three persons fall into such uh, errors as adoptionism, modalism, Arianism, which I'm sure we'll define. Um, But those who fall, uh, those who fail to grasp what it means to say that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit of God, or is God, fall into various forms of subordinationism. Those who emphasize the three to the neglect of what Scripture teaches about the oneness of God fall into forms of tritheism. So when we're talking about language um, as it pertains to God, that's why it's really important to, to first of all, like define what we're talking about, to know where these words come from, and to understand, like to, to emphasize oneness to the neglect of triune uh, being triune and then vice vice versa to emphasize triune to the neglect of oneness um the errors that result are um you know pantheism tritheism uh subordinationism all these different words that i think will sort of flesh out um but but god has revealed himself in his word um progressively we didn't just all of a sudden turn to page one and god's like i am trinity uh and then he started creating or something like that but like throughout um, the, the scope of scripture, the breadth of scripture, we see this reality that God is one, yet God is distinctly triune. Um, so now maybe that's a good transition into where we see this scripture, scripturally. Yeah, definitely. It is really helpful to remember he's three and one, not one, not three. You know, he it's triune, not tri or Yun, <laughs> I don't know, right. um, but as far as picking out certain examples or um, you know, text specific texts to to approach this question, I mean the, the cho- choices are are you know pretty much infinite. I mean, 
it, it's something that suffuses the entire witness of, of, of scripture because it is who he is. Um, so I just wanted to point to three sort of, I think, really quintessential examples um, that that help reveal, you know, what we're talking about when we say that scripture witnesses to God as Trinity. So the first is actually Genesis 1.1. And you're right, he doesn't just sit there and say, I am a Trinity. But what we do see in the first, the literally very first verse of the canon is the Father creating by his word with the spirit hovering over the waters. Um, and in case you're thinking, oh, you're just making a little bit of a, of a, of a leap there. You know, we don't know that that's actually, you know, how do we know that's how we should be reading it? You know, lots of people have read it that way since forever, but even if that's not compelling, Paul reads it that way in apparently our collective favorite, I guess our podcast theme chapter is Colossians 1, but um, in right. Colossians 1, which we've referenced a ton of times, but that's where Paul talks about the fullness of deity dwelling in, in Christ, you know, um, those kinds of um, really amazing statements about Christ himself. But he, one of the things he says is that, you know, the world was created by Christ. So we see, um, you know, also in John 1, 1 with the word uh, being in the beginning and being with God and being God, we see these... Um, trinitarian readings of genesis 1 sprinkled throughout later revelation in the new testament um well and john i mean you mentioned john and i was going to bring that mm -hmm. up in a second but i think it's helpful to say that like john begins his gospel with the same words that begin all of scripture right. in the beginning <laughs> that's not like by accident no, he's hearkening back to, to to the beginning of yeah. <laughs> when all all time all, all creation was made the cosmos exactly you know, he was there yeah yeah. Um, so, you know, Genesis 1 1, we see the Trinity. Um, in Jesus' baptism is another super sort of clear um, picture because we have Jesus, who is the Son. He's baptized. Heaven opens up. We see the Spirit descending on him as a dove and the voice of the Father from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we're just kind of, you know, it, really that's that that scene is probably the least ambiguous thing you could imagine <laughs> as far as like oh man i really wish god made it clear that he was a trinity just read the story of jesus's baptism because we have all three i mean it even it it doesn't even just say oh and a dove descended on jesus it says the spirit descended on jesus like a dove <laughs> like we see right. all three in this one scene interacting in this in this relational way and i think that that is like i said quintessential you've got to look at right. his baptism and then finally just real quickly the way we're instructed when jesus institutes christian baptism it's baptism in the name of the father the son and the spirit it's not baptism in the name of god it's not even baptism into christ's name which you might think oh oh this is this is jesus implementing baptism you know to his disciples and to, to those who are following him but he doesn't you know, institute it into Christ's name or, or Messiah's name or Jesus's name. It's the, it's the triune name, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, so again, super flyover. These are just sort of the top three that come to mind. We could go deeper into scriptural examples. Um, these are what I 
thought of. So these are what I wanted to share. I don't know. You know, we also mentioned John one one. I don't know if there's anything else um, as far as like a text or a story that really comes to mind. Um, yeah, I, I think those are I mean, all those of are John one. Ones. You know, John John one one through eighteen. Like if you, I I, I sort of have been reading through John the last couple of days here. And I mean, I was struck by yeah the language that we already mentioned of him being with God in the beginning. He was God. Um, but like in verse, uh, in verse 14, where he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, um, like sort of uh, dwell dwelling <laughs> on what those words mean. Um, <laughs> but, um, but no, seriously, like tr- the reality that this word, this, this eternal, um, creative agent um became what what he created Mm. and some of the implications of the incarnation and how that relates to god's triune nature um there are just so many depths to plumb and i think maybe we should have mentioned this at the very beginning um but human language in itself can only do so much to describe this great and profound mystery it's not as though like the language is suddenly going to become available to perfectly describe who god is because people have tried to use analogies like oh the trinity is like a a three-leaf clover or it's like an egg or it's like um water um ice and gas like there's there's these different like where these things have three different properties or ideas and they try to express the trinity but all fall short in some way in partially because like there just isn't sufficient language to describe this great mystery that doesn't mean we don't try it doesn't mean we don't use language to do so but we need to understand the limitations that we have so even um when we say that like persons essence like these things still are going to fall short ultimately but they're still helpful in in clarifying yeah i think that's really helpful uh, a really helpful reminder when we're having i mean really any conversation about god um, <laughs> that's true we should put like, a disclaimer at every front of yeah. the episode uh what we're gonna say here is insufficient yeah and i mean it, you know it, it's like you said it that doesn't mean we give up because god's revelation right. is mediated to us through words you know in, in mm-hmm. scripture in, in human language um it does mean we have a, a healthy amount of of humility and and um careful discernment when, when we think about how we want to speak or when we're listening to someone else um and I think that's even a good transition into a, into a, a very exciting topic for for me for um, being a theology nerd loser. I don't know what the right yeah, word I was is, but say nerd, <laughs> Not nerd. Um, but Trinitarian heresies. Mm. So part of the reason <laughs> that these words of Trinity, of essence, of person, sort of this theological vocabulary, like I said earlier, part of the reason this needed to develop was to combat specific teachings that were arising uh, in the church, you know, throughout the early centuries of Christianity. And there are really two big trinitarian heresies that i want to highlight there are more and there are lots of specific people who taught these things but i'm going to focus in on on just two two more general heresies um the first one we're going to call modalism um and the second one is subordinationism so modalism basically kind of teaches that god has three different modes that he um exists in operates that he operates in thank you um and 
so you have God is is God. He's one, and and sometimes he, um, he you know he he comes to Earth. You know, he, he in Genesis, in the beginning he he creates the world. He's operating as Father, as Creator. You know, he needs to save humanity, so he he comes to Earth as as the the incarnated Son, and that's the same God operating in a different way. And then he ascends and he sends his spirit. It's the same God operating a different way, which it doesn't sound very different from what we're talking about when we say it that way, but it is very different because it's not three divine persons operating together in different ways. It's one person operating with three different hats, three different masks, you could say, um, which it's almost like he like, oh, I'm wearing my father name tag today. And where my son named exactly. the next day, but he doesn't. He doesn't just like hop in and out of modes. Exactly, exactly. And um, we we see this in something that's really interesting. I am gonna I'm gonna reference um, Burkhoff's systematic theology. Lewis is it Lewis or Louis? I don't know. Um, Burkhoff's systematic theology. He 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 does something really interesting here. And this is what I the reason I wanted to talk about her, the heresies. I love talking about church history, and you know, like I said. It's super fun for me to just sit here and tell you all about Trinitarian heresies. But I think that there's something more important than just how fun it is, which is that these are really, really relevant. And I want to kind of, as I introduce these two heresies, talk about why I think that is. Um, so he he talks about, Burkhoff, I mean, he's, he's talking about modalism as a heresy, you know, this sort of one God with three different badges that he wears at different times um and he talks about um uh sorry i just needed to i lost my place here it is um so he talks about some people in sort of the after the reformation so so much more recent in history who sort of adopted maybe a different form but adopted this heresy so he talks about this guy named emmanuel swedenborg um who basically just has a modalistic view of God. And he, and he, he, I don't know much about him, but he basically started a church. There's a denomination called Swedenborgians today, and they're hmm. more or less modalists from what I understand. But what's really interesting is he brings up Hegel, who, for those who aren't necessarily familiar with like history of philosophy or philosophy in general, Georg W.F. Hegel was a hugely important influential philosopher in the early 1800s absolutely defining figure in in philosophy everyone like if you're going to be a philosopher you have to reckon with hegel so there's a lot to criticize hegel about i am by no means a philosopher or a hegelian scholar but what i do want to say is hegel is a hugely significant figure and not even and i'm not even talking about for for theologians or for christians just for for any kind of philosophy You've got to deal with Hegel. He's huge. And Burkhoff brings out this modalistic tendency of Hegel when he says, um, Hegel, quote, speaks of the father as God in himself, of the son as God objectifying himself, and of the Holy Spirit as God returning unto himself. So you see this God doing these three different things at three different times, not as three distinct persons relating to each other, but as one God doing three different things. Very modalistic. 
Um, Friedrich Schleiermacher, a, hu- a hugely influential um, German Lutheran, I think, theologian who has been called the father of, of theological liberalism. He, Burkhoff says, quote, regards the three persons simply as three aspects, three aspects of God. So we see very modern um, examples of these heresies. And to bring it even more home, you know, briefly, I want to be careful here. A, a few, couple months ago, I, I don't know when it was, um, there was a, a clip of a sermon from a, a well-known evangelical megachurch pastor in the United States who, you know, Jens recently may or may not have called a heretic on Twitter. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> um, I definitely did. <laughs> um, I'm not here calling this individual a modalist. All I'm saying is he was talking about um, Jesus. Uh, I think he was preaching about when Jesus talks about how he's going to send the comforter. And he said something to the effect of, I, you know, talking for Jesus, I'm going to go away I, I'm gonna, and I'm going to, to, to change forms and, and come to you as the Holy Spirit, which isn't what Jesus says. He, he doesn't change forms. And hopefully by now, if, if I've been clear, you know, forgive me if I haven't, hopefully you can kind of see how that starts to get into a little bit of modalism, or at least it starts to sound somewhat modalistic where you're talking about, okay, Jesus leaves earth, he changes forms into the spirit, as opposed to the second person of the Trinity, who became incarnate, Jesus Christ, Son of God, ascends into heaven, and he sends us the Comforter, the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. You can kind of see how those two things are different, changing forms versus sending the third person. So again, I'm not interested in calling anybody specifically a modalist. That was a out-of-context quote from a sermon that I just happened to see on social media. But what I am saying is that this stuff is alive and well. And I think we can see this even more clearly with this other heresy I want to talk about, subordinationism, which has a lot of different forms, the most famous of which is is Arianism, named after Arius, who kind of was the, he was the the teacher in the early church who, who gained quite a large following at one, at one point in, in some parts of the empire, um, there were more Arians than Orthodox Christians. Um, Dang. And he basically, he, he taught that Jesus was not God. He taught that Jesus was a, a semi-divine creature that, uh, that God created at, at some point. Um, Which has a proof text, maybe if you read poorly, um, I'm blanking on, on, uh, he, he is the firstborn. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and that's kind of what I was talking about it earlier in the beginning. I was saying how everybody at the time were using scripture verses to argue for, for what they were saying. So Arius, who's, who's teaching that Christ is not God, he's using Bible verses. He's not using them well, we, you know, we would argue and the church has argued, but he's not just saying this stuff as if he's trying to like throw out the Bible. He's he's using Bible verses taken maybe out of context or misapplied or misinterpreted, and he's using that to say something that is that is not true about who God is, about who Jesus is. Um, and subordinationism, you know, in all its forms, really 
talks about there being some form of subordination between God and Jesus or God and the spirit. Um, like a hierarchy like, kind yeah, of? Yeah, like a hierarchy, but specifically a hierarchy of like of essence. They're, they're saying that these three persons do not share in the same essence. They're saying that that the the essence of God is different than the essence of Christ, which is why the language of essence was so important um, mm-hmm. in these debates. And that's why in, you know, there was a big controversy and a big uh, emphasis on this new word that was coined at the Council of Nicaea, homoousios, which means the same, it's a compound word, homo means same, ousios means, means essence, the same essence, so that Christ is the same essence as the Father. That was like, the, that was the big sort of nail in the coffin of, of Arian's, Arius's teaching. Um, and that's, that's why that language was important, because we, we needed to clarify and specify and explain in new ways what Scripture was teaching in order to clarify what was true and what was false. Um, and again, essence in person. We see in modalism, you've got the divine essence, but you don't have the three persons. So you can kind of see how this language, it, it, it you know, it works so well because it, it was made for this purpose. Um, and there was this group uh, during the Reformation um, called the Socinians. And again, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to quote a couple sentences of Burkhoff here. Um, the Socinians of the days of the Reformation moved along Aryan lines but even went beyond Arius by making Christ merely a man and the Holy Spirit but a power or influence. And here's where, again, the relevance really comes in, especially you guys just visited us in Massachusetts and, and you kind of saw this, um, especially for this part of the, of the country. Um, they, the Socinians, these people who were, who were being, you know, hardcore subordinationist in their theology, they were the forerunners of the Unitarians and also of the liberal theologians who speak of Jesus as a divine teacher and identify the Holy Spirit with the imminent God. So, hmm. again, these are not just abstract, you know, obscure theological conversations, but these are imp- core doctrinal dogmatic truths that need to be hashed out accurately or you run into real problems. And you mentioned the Jehovah's Witnesses with subordinationism. In the beginning was the word, and the word was a God, you know? Um, they're subordinationists. They're essentially Aryan in their theology. And if you don't have a good grasp on the Trinity, on Trinitarian theology, or why the Trinity is so important, these heresies, are it's easier for them to creep in. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not a small thing for these heresies to creep in, because the Socinians and the Reformation... They, they allowed uh, uh, subordinationism to creep in. And over the years, that starts to erode other doctrines. And soon you have you don't even have a trinity at all. You have Unitarianism. And hopefully we can kind of see the, the, the connections here, just in, is why this is so important. And right. um, as, much, as much as it is a historical conversation, it's also a very relevant conversation very in, in terms of... Yeah. And just in terms of 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 right theology of, of orthodoxy um yeah yeah so i know i kind of just spit a bunch of craziness and you know obscure 
words and stuff. So hopefully you were able to follow and, you know, if, you know, hopefully I wasn't too no, confusing. No, that was all really good and helpful. I think, I think it was good. And I think to sort of wrap this up, you know, we'll sort of conclude with just kind of, I, I kind of listed out three reasons that the Trinity is important. So you've already t- sort of talked about like heresies and the implications and how um, even just subordinationism can erode other doctrines. And I think it's kind of fair to say that many in what many Western Christians, especially are practical modalists, whether they, they're not, maybe not, not, maybe not even trying to be, but like in the way of referring to God just as God, or maybe referring to the Lord or Jesus, um, like we almost think of them as like three separate gods or something. Um, and this sort of goes hand in hand with a dire lack of understanding of the historic doctrine of the Trinity. Like, so what we've been talking about today, like what, you know, Nicaea taught with the Cappadocian fathers and, and stuff like that, what, what they really tried to emphasize. The cap um, or like, daddies. Wasn't it August- <laughs> cap daddies, right? Um, or like Augustine, didn't he write on the Trinity? Is that yeah. Who, yeah. who wrote that work? So like these people who existed long ago, mm. um, who, who worked to develop these, these doctrines, these core beliefs um we we have a really poor understanding and we we don't have a real robust theology um so you know some i think some people sort of think of it as like a confusing math problem um like how is god one and three like is that four that's 17 i don't like i don't know i think that's sometimes how maybe not actually but we have a hard time conceptualizing no, yeah. one and three good, unity and diversity i think that's a really good way to to put it is because it is hard, you know, and, and yeah. we're not saying that it's not hard, but we are saying that there's better ways of of teaching, you know, and, and, and reflecting on it than trying to squeeze, you know, math into it. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, we, we might not think that the Trinity has a huge impact on our day-to-day lives, but I'm going to give you three reasons that it does. All right. So number one, the Christian life and experience is profoundly Trinitarian. So, I mean, you could just say human life and experience. Um, but when we think about the fact that first and foremost, our, our salvation is, I mean, it's inseparably Trinitarian, the three persons planning and securing our salvation. Uh, because whether Jew or Gentile, we have access in or by the Spirit through Christ to the Father, Ephesians 2.18. I mean, there's all over Paul's uh, writings, like everything that we do um, is a Trinitarian work. So if you are a born-again believer, you are one because our one in three, three in one God um, allowed it to be so. I mean, I even think of like your creation, the fact that you exist, you know, in in like what Genesis one twenty seven, let us make man in our image. You know, there's debate on what that language means, um, but it's not hard for the Christian to be like, wow, even from the first page of scripture, God is speaking in a plurality or, you know, we don't see this when we talk about God because English doesn't work this way, but the word God in Hebrew, the word that is translated God is Elohim. If you know anything about Hebrew, the, the last two letters, I am, im, uh, is emphasizing plurality. It's something plural, whether it's, um, you know, many people, many swords, many battles. Um, I'm trying to think of other words that would end with <laughs> seraphim, like, that's, you know, okay, so that, you know, that means, you know, some sort of many angelic creatures, but like Elohim, the, the, this name that we just, we, we just say God, but it's, it's plural. 
Um, so there's there's evidence even in, in the Old Testament. Um, so our life, our experience, and you know, I said in Him we live and move and have our being. Um, all of this is is Trinitarian, and that sort of connects to creation. So that was number two. Um, creation, um, you know, there's order, there's coherence, so there's unity, yet distinctiveness in the many parts of the cosmos. I mean, all one has to do is like look outside at just birds or just insects or just trees or just whatever. And there's this, this diversity, there's this um, proliferation of, of beauty, of majesty, of splendor. Um, and all of this is reflective of our, our triune God. Like I think of Romans 1 where, you know, where Paul says, um, uh, you know, that we are without excuse because his divine attributes are clearly perceived. Well, his divine attributes, uh, his Trinitarian nature are clearly perceived even in, you know, the order, the coherence, yet distinctiveness. You know, where else would this come from but from our triune God? Mm. Um the very fabric of, of of the cosmos is is trinitarian and so thus therefore uh we ought to live in this world as good stewards um as people who are are faithful who um who work diligently who um you know are mindful that like you know other people live here animals have to live here um not to be abusers of god's good creation whether that's abusers of other people abusers of land of um animals whatever it might be um but but creation is is trinitarian it's reflective of our god and lastly and and some of these sort of tie in together i understand that but number three i said the trinity should also deeply affect how we treat other people and this is like almost just like a no duh um but philippians 2 5 through 11 says have this in mind or sorry have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So there's a lot There's a lot that you could even just unpack in those five or six verses or whatever. Um, but to say that like Jesus himself, God himself did not count equality with the Father a thing to be grasped. And that's not saying that like, Jesus relinquished his divinity in becoming humanity. Um, but Christ himself in coming to earth, if we think about what would have been owed to him, what would have been his due, if we were to use that language, like we're talking about the creator of the cosmos who created everything. He should have just been like instantly worshiped and established as like king of the earth on earth ruling from a throne. Um, but instead he didn't, you know, that what he should have been given, he did not take, but he took the form of a servant Um, And so when we think about how we treat people, we often are so self-seeking. We only seek what we want, what betters us, what makes us happy, what we enjoy. Um, Where Christ gave up his life, uh, he died for us, even death on a cross. And so obviously this bears in mind, you know, when we think about how we love one another, um, you know, the church, what is, what is, what is, uh, I'm conflating whether it was Paul or Jesus, but you know, you will be known by the love that you have for one another. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that was Jesus. I think, that I think that's said, in John 17. 
yeah, like you, they, the world will know that you are mine because of the love that you have. Man, if if we actually put that into practice, oh, how different this world would look. Um, but the reality is, is that the Trinity deeply affects how we treat other people because our triune God has a, a unity in his diversity, as we're going to say time and time again, <laughs> and humanity is reflective of that as his creation. Yeah. But when we think about the fact that male and female, distinct yet one, both homo sapien, both human, both have value, dignity, worth, um, yet are distinct. They are different. A man, men look different than women. Um, and that doesn't, you know, that's that's one pr- perspective. But then if you look at even the various ethnicities of the world, like our God created, um, you know, different s- skin colors, different eye colors, hair colors. We all look different. We talk a little different. We have different heights, different weights. There is this diversity even in the midst of our, our, our unity and how we treat other people, again, I'll say it for one more time, is a Trinitarian matter. So mm-hmm. do you hate other people? Do you harbor hatred in your heart? Do you, are you a racist? Are you sexist? Are you an abuser? Are you whatever? Like, do you care for people? Um, because if you don't, and if you call yourself a Christian, then you need to maybe reevaluate um, those, those aspects of your life. Because, um, you know, like I said, we, we are self like we, we sorry we are to be self-giving as opposed to self-seeking mm. um the whole the whole life of fallen man as well as we all it's clearly perceived is is a life that seeks self-gratification um, but we see that god actively pursues the interest of the other and we ought to as well so i mean this topic of the trinity is a a dangerous area as we've sort of explored i think we've we've sort of said that the danger lurks um you know, on all sides, because wrong views of God can twist and corrupt our worship and our ministry. Uh, it can twist and corrupt the life and the witness of the church. And ultimately, it'll twist and corrupt the peace, the harmony, and the well-being of the world around us. So, like, the Trinity has profound implications. It's not just trying to think of a way to describe how God has revealed himself in his word, which, I mean, that's part of it. But but more than that, it changes and affects how we live, how we move, and how we have our being yeah. in this world. So, I don't, anything else you want to add there? No, I think that's a perfect way to end it. Well, then we will end it. Um, I was going to read out of um, Valley of Vision called the Trinity, but I have a feeling I read that already for some reason. So, I'm going to read a quote that I've skipped a little bit ago from one of the cap daddies, Greg, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, I think. So, we'll just we'll sort of c- mm-hmm. conclude with these thoughts. He says, No sooner... Do I conceive of the one than I am illuminated by the splendor of the three? No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part uh, of what I am thinking of escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute the greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. Mm. So that's like you wow. know an ancient way of saying God is three in one or something. Yeah, <laughs> um, just sounded kind of cool. Before we wrap up, I actually I as we were talking, I, I forgot to mention this. Um, if you want to dive a little deeper into this, mm. a, an extremely, extremely highly recommended book would be i think it's michael reeves delighting in the trinity 
I've never read it, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but I've, it comes highly recommended. I know. Yeah, that. I, I had it. Doctor Clark assigned it to us in in systematic theology, and and um, yeah, it was a. Re- it's it's very accessible. Like it's not it's not like six hundred pages. You know, like it, it it's it's not too long. It, it, it he does an amazing job of kind of emphasizing in obviously much better than we could here um um what it what the trinity is and why it's so important and and how it affects the rest of our belief in doctrine and um another i have another one for you um deep things uh sorry the deep things of god how the trinity changes everything Mm. by fred sanders is another one that is one that i have read and it's also really accessible, cool. really easy. I mean, you could also go for Robert Lethem's Trinity, but it's like 800 pages <laughs> and it's really dense. So like maybe if you're the academic, that's the one to go for. But yeah, I mean, but yeah, definitely something worth devoting a lot of time and, and thought and reflection to like, like our, like our father, um, Greg of Greg Nancy hands. And um, so, yeah, yeah. I just think um, I'll hopefully remember to, um, put some links maybe to those books in the uh in the I'll notes try to remember too. um i know i've kind of been dropping the ball with the <laughs> with the uh um what are they called the descriptions and stuff so maybe this time I'll... yeah it's been a busy busy last couple of weeks. <laughs> it's funny like i we didn't mention this at the beginning but like we haven't recorded like we're recording normally but we haven't recorded normally for like in weeks. two weeks like two and a half weeks or something and if not longer, if not longer yeah. so it's kind of funny but um back back in the back to the old grind you know and it's it's good it's good stuff so thank you so much for joining us and listening to today's episode of the doxology podcast if you'd like to connect with us you can as always hit us up on twitter or instagram at doxology podcast or email us at doxology podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear your feedback questions ideas for future episodes um anything else you want to you want to send our way Um, You can sign up for our weekly newsletter to get an update on upcoming episodes and any special announcements or anything that's going on. Um, Check out logos.com slash doxology podcast for more information from our sponsor, Logos Bible Software. And until next time, um, we'd love to hear from you on social media and we'll catch you in the next episode. Peace. Peace.